This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Conclusion Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image on his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. Daniel 2, 34-35 We conclude where we began, with the fundamental theme of the Bible, the transition from wrath to grace. This takes place in history, definitively and progressively. It is not limited to personal transformation. It involves every area of life in which sin presently reigns. The definitive transition took place at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the sending of the Holy Spirit and the destruction of the Old Covenant's world order at the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, completed the definitive foundation of Jesus Christ's New Covenant world order. This New World Order is still dominant in history. It will remain dominant. It will smash every earthly imitation New World Order, just as it smashed the Roman Empire. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 2, 8-9 The fifth kingdom belongs to Jesus Christ, not to autonomous man. God warns the rulers of the earth, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are they that put their trust in him. Psalm 2, 10-12 But covenant-breaking man refuses to learn this lesson from either history or the Bible. The messianic rhetoric of political salvation is ingrained in modern man, despite men's loss of faith in the theology of political salvation. As Drucker says, Political slogans outlive reality. They are the smile on the face of politics' Cheshire cat. More to the point, quote, The slogans can still serve as brakes on action. They are unlikely any longer to provide guides to action or motive power. End quote. We must be ready for a massive paradigm shift culturally. We now see the ultimate unreality, a return to the rhetoric of the Tower of Babel, just before its builders were scattered. In the midst of an unprecedented budget crisis and political deadlock, and in the midst of a military confrontation between the U.S. and Iraq, President Bush announced to Congress, quote, A new partnership of nations has begun. We stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward an historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, 
can emerge. A new era, freer from the reign, threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, east and west, north and south, can prosper and live in harmony. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. Today that new world is struggling to be born, a world quite different from the one we've known, a world in which the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle, a world in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice, a world where the strong respect the rights of the weak. This is the vision I shared with President Gorbachev in Helsinki. He and other leaders from Europe, the Gulf and around the world, understand how we manage this crisis today could shape the future for generations to come. End quote. He speaks of a hundred generations. This takes us back to the era of Abraham or thereabouts, in the days when Egypt rocked the cradle of civilization. From Egypt to 1990, a lengthy gestation period. I think Mr. Bush was not deliberately exaggerating, as messianic as his extended timetable may initially appear. The model of Egypt is always the covenant breaker's preferred alternative to decentralized biblical civilization. It is time to recall the words of the great German sociologist Max Weber in a speech he delivered in 1909. Quote, to this day, there has never existed a bureaucracy which could compare with that of Egypt. This is known to everyone who knows the social history of ancient times, and it is equally apparent that today we are proceeding towards an evolution which resembles that system in every detail, except that it is built on other foundations, on technically more perfect, more rationalized, and therefore more mechanical foundations. The problem which besets us now is not how can this evolution be changed, for that is impossible, but what is to come of it? End quote. Our generation is about to get the answer to Weber's question. We now face the looming threat of Egypt revisited. This is far more of a threat to the enemies of Christ than to the church. Thus saith the Lord, They also that uphold Egypt shall fall, and the pride of her power shall come down from the tower of Cyrene, shall they fall in it by the sword, saith the Lord God. Ezekiel 36 The towers of this world shall crumble, and those who trust in them shall fall. Kingdom versus Empire History manifests a war between two organizational principles of international civil government, kingdom, and empire. Christ's international kingdom is decentralized. Satan's international kingdom is centralized, characterized by a top-down bureaucratic system, issuing commands. Satan does not possess God's omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, so he must rely heavily on his own hierarchy, or as C.S. Lewis calls it in the Screwtape Letters, the lowerarchy. The larger that Satan's empire becomes, the more overextended it becomes. Like a man who attempts to juggle an increasing number of oranges, Satan cannot say no to his assistants, who keep tossing him more decisions. Eventually, every empire collapses. The principle of empire cannot long sustain human government, church, state, or family. In the colloquial phrase, empires always bite off more than they can chew. 
The Bible teaches that human empires were always replaced by other empires until the advent of Christ's kingdom. From that time forward, it is the kingdom principle that is dominant in history. The thousand-year Reich of Nazi Germany lasted 12 years, 1933 to 45. The communist empire of the Soviet Union is a creaking economic hulk, one which relies on the threat of nuclear war and a strategy of criminal subversion in order to extend its power, and which has steadily bankrupted itself by supporting its bankrupt client states. Empires are parasitic, relying on their conquest of productive nations in order to keep its bureaucracies well-fed. But as their political power grows larger with the growth of empire, these bureaucracies steadily strangle the productivity of those who have already fallen to the empire. The empire cannot sustain its expansionist impulse. Meanwhile, its enemies multiply and strengthen their will to resist, unless they have already begun to worship the gods, world and life view, of the conquerors. A loss of faith. Christianity, in its orthodox form, challenges all forms of the power religion. Christianity is the religion of Christ's kingdom, civilization. It offers a better way of life and temporal death, for it offers the only path to eternal life. It offers comprehensive redemption, the healing of international civilization. It is the dominant religion. When Christianity departs from its heritage of preaching the progressive sanctification of men and institutions, it abandons the idea of Christ's progressively revealed kingdom, civilization, on earth in history. It then departs into another religion, the escape religion. This leaves the battle for civilization in the hands of the various power religionists. Russia saw the defeat of the visible national church when the theology of mysticism and suffering, canonic theology, at last brought paralysis to the Russian Orthodox Church. It had been infiltrated by people holding pagan and humanistic views of many varieties. The Church was incapable of dealing with the power religion of Lenin, and especially Lenin's successor, the former seminary student, Joseph Stalin. We are seeing today a replay of those years written large. The war for the hearts and minds of men continues to escalate internationally. The technology of nuclear destruction competes with the technology of economic healing and the mass communication of the gospel. But contrary to Marx, it is not the substructure of the mode of production that determines the superstructure of religious faith. The contrary is the case. The battle is over covenants and ethics, not economics. Conquest through service. An empire is necessarily threatened by the gospel. The gospel challenges the theology of man as divine, a theology that always undergirds every empire. But to stamp out their Christian enemies, the bureaucrats must take great risks. The bureaucrats who run the economy always want to meet their production quotas and earn their bonuses. If they persecute Christians, they threaten their organization's output. Time and again, the most productive citizens of any empire are the hated Christians. They are the ones who are not addicted to alcohol or absenteeism or other forms of passive resistance. The biblical idea of service serves Christianity well. The failing productivity of the empire makes the bureaucratic functionaries increasingly dependent on Christians in order to meet the assigned production quotas. Like Jacob in Laban's household, 
like Joseph in Potiphar's household and in the Egyptian prison, competent service to others creates dependency on the servant. Dominion is by service. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Matthew 23.11 Satan believes that dominion is by power. He seeks to control others. Their resistance slows his ability to bring others under his power. There is built-in resistance to expansion in every empire. Territory and people once captured cannot be held captive indefinitely. They find ways of thwarting the bureaucratic system. Empires do not survive for long. Their masters must work very fast and take high risks in order to extend the power of their empires. In contrast, Christians have plenty of time. Slow growth multiplies over many generations. This is God's promise. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of generations of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, 5-6 Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack to the him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Deuteronomy 7, 9-10 Pagan empires are invariably cut off in the midst of history. They try to achieve world dominion, but there are always new empires rising up to challenge them. Daniel 8 God will not permit any nation to achieve total world dominion in history. The one-state world is a denial of God's universal sovereignty over man, and also a denial of Christ's progressive kingdom in history. The pagan empire cannot tolerate rivals. It cannot be content with a federation. It cannot share the glory of power. It therefore cannot succeed in history. The kingdom of Christ imposes the requirement of modesty on the nations that compose it. No Christian nation can hope to impose its will by force on the whole world. Such pride is recognized as being evil, as well as self-destructive. Dominion is by service. Thus, the decentralized earthly kingdom of Christ can grow over time to fill the earth, but without becoming an empire. No one nation can hope to achieve dominance though one or two may achieve primary influence temporarily, through adherence to the principle of service. Long-term cooperation among nations is possible only if all of them realize the inherent God-imposed limitations on the power wielded by any one nation. The Christian nation faces the same warning that Christian individuals face. Pride goeth before destruction, and an haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16.18 the residents of each nation must regard their own nation as mortal, just as men regard themselves. The more closely a nation conforms to biblical ethical standards, the longer it will survive as a separate entity. This is the biblical principle of inheritance. The heirs of any national group will retain their separate character only so long as God continues to grant the nation his grace. Rebellion against him brings destruction and national obliteration. As always, dominion is by covenant. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done 
all our works in us. O Lord God, other masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead, they will not live. They are deceased, they will not rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation. You are glorified, you have expanded all the borders of the land. Isaiah 26, 12-15, New King James Version Christians have good reasons to be confident about the earthly future of Christ's kingdom. Pagans do not have much of anything to be confident about. Time is against them. So is God. Time and self-confidence If people believe that they are doomed as individuals, they find it difficult to survive in a life-threatening crisis. This is also true about civilizations. Self-confidence rests heavily on an optimistic view of the future. The vision of time that a society shares is very important for understanding how it operates. If you think you are running out of time, you will do certain things. If you think you have all the time in the world, you will do different things. Your vision of the future influences your activities in the present. The Bible teaches that time is linear. It also teaches that everything that takes place in history is governed by the absolute sovereignty of a personal God. Thus, Christians rest their earthly hope in the providence of God. History is neither random nor determined by impersonal forces. It is governed by the God who created the universe. The Bible teaches the doctrine of creation, meaning creation out of nothing. It teaches that man rebelled against God, and both nature and man now labor under God's historical curse. It tells of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his birth, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. It tells of Pentecost, when he sent his Holy Spirit. It tells us of Christ's church in history, and of final judgment. There is direction in history and meaning in life. Christians are told to believe in thousands of generations as their operating time perspective. This is probably a metaphorical expression for history as a whole. Few, if any, Christians have taught about a literal 60,000-year period of history, 2,000 times 30 years. The point is, the Bible teaches that the kingdom of God can expand for the whole of history, while Satan's empires rise and fall. There is no long-term continuity for Satan's institutional efforts. He has nothing comparable to the church, God's monopolistic, perpetual institution that offers each generation God's covenantal sacraments. If growth can be compounded over time, a very small capital base and a very small rate of growth leads to the conquest of the world. Growth becomes exponential if it is maintained long enough. This is the assured basis of the Christianity's long-term triumph in history. God is faithful. The temporary breaks in the growth process due to the rebellion of certain generations of covenanted nations do not call a halt to the expansion of the kingdom. The errors, omissions, and narrow focus of any particular Christian society need not inhibit the progress of Christ's earthly kingdom. These limitations can be dealt with covenantally. The international church can combine its members' particular skills and perspectives into a world-transforming world and life view. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 Modern telecommunications and modern airborne transport are now making this possible.
Christianity has in principle a far more potent view of time than any other religion. If Christians fully understood the implications of the Bible's view of time, and if they also possessed the covenantal faithfulness to translate this vision into institutional action, then the world would soon fall to the gospel. It is only because of corruption by anti-Christian outlooks that the universal church and Western civilization are visibly in retreat today. A Vision of Victory Because the West has lost its faith in God, it has lost its faith in the future. Only with a revival of covenantal Christianity is the West likely to reverse the drift into despair. Such a revival is possible, and there are signs that it is coming. The communists are suffering from their own waning of faith in Marxism, as Solzhenitsyn has said repeatedly. The problem is, when there is a contest between two empires, or two non-Christian systems, the one that has greater self-confidence and overwhelming military superiority to back up this confidence is likely to be the winner. The escape religion, Western humanism, until late 1989 was no match for the power religion, communist humanism. It took the economic collapse of communism, despite hundreds of billions of dollars in loans from Western governments and banks, to bring down visible communist rule in Eastern Europe and to restructure it in the Soviet Union, at least for a time. The West is losing faith in five major premises concerning history. Robert Nesbitt writes, quote, There are at least five major premises to be found in the ideas history from the Greeks to our day. Belief in the value of the past, conviction of the nobility, even superiority of Western civilization, acceptance of the worth of economic and technological growth, faith in reason and in the kind of scientific and scholarly knowledge that can come from reason alone, and finally, belief in the intrinsic importance, the ineffable worth of life on this earth. End quote. How will the West defend itself against the effects of skepticism, boredom, immorality, and economic crises? The West has lost faith in the future so it finds it difficult to defend itself morally in the present. Western intellectuals perceive the West as morally bankrupt. Guilt is eroding the moral foundations of a successful defense of Western civilization. Nisbet says, quote, What is in all ways most devastating, however, is the signal decline in America and Europe themselves of faith in the value and promise of Western civilization. What has succeeded faith is on the vivid and continuing enlarging record, guilt, alienation, and indifference. An attitude that we as a nation and as a Western civilization can in retrospect see ourselves as having contaminated, corrupted, and despoiled other peoples in the world, and that for having done this we should feel guilty, ashamed, and remorseful, grows and widens among Americans especially, and even more especially among young Americans of the middle class. For good reasons or bad, the lay clerisy of the West, the intelligentsia that began in the 18th century to be, succeed the clergy as the dominant class so far as citizens' beliefs are concerned, devotes a great deal of its time to lament, self-flagellation, and harsh judgment upon an entire history, Western history. End quote. Because Western men have lost their faith in God, 
biblical law and God's sanctions of cursing and blessing in history, they have also lost their faith in the future. The West has begun to lose confidence in its past, its present, and its future. This has paralyzed Western foreign policy for over a generation. The West has lost its faith in progress. The question today is this. Has the process of moral and ideological disintegration behind the Iron Curtain accelerated to the point that communist rule really has collapsed of its own weight despite its overwhelming superiority in the technology of destruction? Have we seen the turning point? Has the planned deception of the West that is described by the KGB defector Golitsyn in 1984 now backfired on the communists? If so, who will inherit the rotting hulk? Christianity, humanist democracy, international bureaucracy, or Islam? Conclusion The Bible teaches that God deals covenantally with nations, even at the final judgment and beyond. Thus, nations are under the terms of the covenant, either explicitly, ancient Israel, or implicitly, all nations under God as judge. The covenant process of blessings and cursings is therefore called into operation in the history of nations. National continuity and discontinuity must be viewed as an outworking of this fourth point of the biblical covenant. History has seen the rise of empires. They have all failed. They are satanic imitations of the definitively, though not historically, unified kingdom of Christ on earth. The tendency of Christ's kingdom is toward expansion. This leavening process is also a feature of Satan's imitation kingdom, but his kingdom has been on the defensive ever since Calvary. Whenever Christian nations remained faithful to the terms of God's covenant, they experienced blessings leading to victory over time. Whenever they have apostatized, they have faced judgment and have had their inheritance transferred to other nations, either through military defeat or economic defeat. The West now faces its greatest challenge since the fall of the Roman Empire. The formerly Christian West has abandoned the concept of the covenant, and with it, Christianity's vision of victory in history. The humanists cling to a waning worldview, announcing their new world order even as the moral and intellectual foundations of such confidence are lost. Like the coins issued by Roman emperors, one after another, that kept announcing the dawn of a new age, a new political salvation, the dross is replacing the silver. This is a religious crisis, and it has become visible in every area of life. Peter Drucker has identified both the nature of this crisis and the opportunity. Quote, the death of the belief in salvation by society, which for 200 years had been the most dynamic force in the politics of the West and increasingly in politics worldwide, creates a void. End quote. He insists that, quote, We are not going to return to a belief in salvation by faith as a major political factor. End quote. But he is wrong. Salvation by faith is going to become the major factor in every area of life, including politics. The present historical trends, which Drucker probably understands better than any other contemporary social commentator, do not tell him what he needs to know. These trends are going to be disrupted by divinely imposed discontinuity. The question is when, not if. There is only one long-term solution to modern man's crisis, a comprehensive revival leading to the transformation 
of all things and the healing of all the nations. This means that Christianity needs to offer the people of this world a better promise than pie in the sky by and by. Yet this is all that premillennialism and amillennialism can honestly offer to those who join the church. While premillennialists and amillennialists may resent this statement, they need to show why I am wrong, not merely by writing a defense of the theoretical possibility of pessimillennial social theory, though I doubt that this can be done, but by actually writing biblical social theory. They have neglected to do so for over three centuries. Our enemies have noticed this silence. They correctly conclude that the modern church is suffering from both a defective epistemology and a defective ethical system, and they have dismissed the gospel as a message fit only for children and old women of both sexes. Christianity needs to offer a detailed, comprehensive cultural alternative to the existing humanist social order. We cannot beat something with nothing. The Church needs to offer covenant theology and social theory based forthrightly and consistently on the biblical covenant model. Until it does, the Church will continue to suffer from pie in the face in history. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.